This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The Conservative Party, of course, is in the process of, of trying to elect a new leader for their party. Well, so are the NDP for that matter, too. But the Conservative uh, Convention and uh, leadership uh, race will actually wrap up before that one does. And it looks as if Maxime Bernier is in the lead. Uh, Bernier leads all candidates right now in fundraising for the first quarter of 2017. He has raised nearly twice as much as the next closest candidate, just over a million dollars. Uh, is this what's separating him from the pack? Does fundraising actually serve as a pretty uh, reliable barometer as to who's going to win this thing? Joining us to talk about the race is uh, Professor of uh, Political Science uh, Peter Grafe uh, from McMaster University. And uh, Peter, first of all, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Let me ask you, we haven't talked for a little while yet. Were you surprised by Kevin O'Leary's move last week? Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> I mean... Uh, I wasn't that surprised that he decided not to run to the very end because it didn't seem like he was going to be running in any part of it. It was a very, <laughs> it was a very odd campaign. Uh, on the other hand, given how odd it was, uh, one wasn't, you know, one might have thought he would have just stayed on until the end. But uh, clearly, his heart wasn't in it. One wonders a bit why uh, he went to all the effort of putting together a kind of blue chip group of conservatives, including uh, Mike Harris, uh, former premier of Ontario to do the preparatory work for him and then and do the whole launch when he clearly wasn't committed to doing any campaigning. Well, that's the thing that always just I, I flummoxed me when I saw this and, and saw the way his campaign was evolving. And, you know, there, there was a number of studies that said, well, I don't know, Lear could win this thing. He's way out ahead of everybody else at one point. That seemed to be almost a consensus opinion. But he didn't. I never got the sense he had his heart in this. Did he maybe have this epiphany, Peter, that, that you know what, there's a lot of more work to this thing than I thought there was? It could be, or maybe he felt, well, you know, I'll put my name out there, and uh, if there's a kind of wave or a rush towards me, then maybe I'll put in a bit more effort, and if there isn't, which there wasn't, I guess, uh, he'd step back. I mean, it's really hard to understand why people would invest the time and energy and the money as well in, in running a campaign when one isn't that serious about it. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, you know, uh, Kevin O'Leary's always someone who's been wanting to brand himself and have himself in the public eye, and maybe he was hoping that this would help in that way. But even there, it's hard to really think that, because, uh, you know, a campaign that's not that successful or that looks like it's just being phoned in probably hurts one's image as much as helps it. Well, not just phoned in, but phoned in from long distance in Boston or New York most of the time, because that's where he seemed to be spending most of his time. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's uh, it's hard to it's hard to tell you know how one should take this. I mean, Kevin O'Leary's really sold himself as a successful businessman, but that's really a character he plays on television more than his own business career, which was much more kind of patchy and up and down. And so, you know, it may be that he he doesn't have the golden touch that he uh, wants us to believe he has. Does Maxine Bernier? Does he have that golden touch? Uh, I'm not sure he has a golden touch, but I think his success in this campaign is a, is a sign of hard work uh, and persistent organization. Uh, I mean, compared to many other candidates in this race, he hasn't made a big splash. It wasn't like uh, someone like uh, Kelly Leach, who was you know, regularly in the paper uh, about her views on immigration. And it's not uh, someone like uh, Michael Chong, who's trying to expand, who might be a conservative. I mean, Maxime Bernier in many ways stayed under the radar in this race, but he had very good people organizing for him. And to date, that's shown up in terms of uh, seemingly high support. And I mean, we don't really have public uh, available polls until Main Street comes out later today. But from the, the indications we have, it's done well in polls. And as you point out, probably the best indication of uh, success in one of these one-member, one-vote leadership races is money raised. And there he, he holds a commanding lead over the rest of the candidates. 
he's an interesting case, isn't he, Peter? Uh, this is a guy who I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about this, who basically almost had to reinvent himself. I mean, he left the Harper cabinet, and I, I don't know if disgrace is too strong a word, but uh, th- there were some questionable uh, ethics questions asked about, you know, leaving uh, high-profile documents and, and confidential documents in his girlfriend's apartment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so there was a credibility issue, I guess, there at one stage, but that, that seems to have been pushed to the back now, and nobody seems to care much about that anymore. Yeah, it certainly has been forgotten in this race. I guess it was over a decade ago, so there's a way in which that gets forgotten. And, uh, I mean, that maybe he's reinvented himself as someone who seems uh, more sincere, uh, more uh, concerned about uh, doing, you know, the right thing, working hard at his, you know, at his job, uh, following the rules. But in terms of how, his actual view of the world, I mean, he hasn't changed since then. He's been a consistent libertarian uh, in his views, uh, particularly around economic issues, in terms of being in favor of uh, drastically reducing the presence of uh, state intervention, particularly in the economy and in social programs, and reducing taxes. And that's really been the heart of his campaign. And in that way, he's been true to himself. In a way, some people have asked questions, you know, did Kelly Leach really believe what she's saying about immigration? Uh, people have no doubt that Maxime Bernier says, believes what he says about a you know, smaller government and uh, slower taxes, because that's what he's been about since day one. What's interesting, uh, one of the many things, I guess, that I find interesting about this race, uh, this leadership race anyway, Peter, is that this is not just selecting a leader. This is really selecting a, a philosophy and, I guess, in, in, a, in a framework for the Conservative Party at this stage. Because uh, you look down the list of the, the people here, whether it's Bernier or Kelly Leach or, or Michael Chong, as you've mentioned, very different views on, on where they want to see not just the country go, but their own party go. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I mean, the Liberal Party maybe is a bit different than the rest of the parties in being a bit more uh, you know, of a mishmash of ideas that it runs on. But for an ideological party like the Conservatives, the leadership, convention, uh, leadership race is very important in terms of setting out, well, what are the principles of that party that they want to rally around? And certainly Canadian conservatism is quite diverse. You have uh, people who believe that the real core of conservatism is a conservative stance on, on moral issues. And, and we have people like uh, Andrew Scheer and Brad Trost uh, bringing that into the, the race. Uh, there's others who have much more of a kind of law and order and maintaining the status quo in terms of identity, uh, a certain sense of Canadian identity. And I guess that would be Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander and Stephen Blaney have brought that. And then you have the free market conservatives, and uh, really in this race, uh, it's been uh, it's been Maxime Pernier who's brought that forward the most, and probably has enabled him to uh, federate a lot more votes because he hasn't been competing against others on that uh, grounds. And then finally, you have someone like Michael Chong, who I think uh, incarnates the old Red Tory vision of the Conservative Party that we might have associated with someone like David Crombie, the former mayor of Toronto back in the day. Uh, but you know, I think we'll see in his result that that sort of tendency is not that present in the Conservative Party anymore. In many ways, uh, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party is you know, not so far from the space that Brian Mulroney was in the 1980s. And so I suspect a lot of Red Tories are actually uh, now carrying Liberal cards. Did did the Red Tories die when Stephen Harper took over the party? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they might have been dead already in the 1990s for the most part. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously... We had Joe Clark in the late 1990s and into the 2000 election trying to revive a, a progressive conservative party federally that would uh, maybe be a bit more in the red Tory tradition. You know, his failure to make a big breakthrough and his ultimate uh, decision to step down, I think, spelt the end of that as an organized tendency. 
and we don't really see that even in the uh, Ontario, provi- uh, pro- you know, the provincial Ontario uh, Conservative Party. Um, so yeah, I think the Red Tories have mostly gone, uh, and or if they they're still around, they maybe see themselves as, you know, liberals or New Democrats, as those parties too have changed in their views. So. Who are they courting? Who are the Conservatives courting now with, with the missives from Blaney and Kelly Leach and, and, and the libertarian economic policies of a Maxime Bernier? Is is there a, a, a hypothetical voter that they've got in their minds that they're looking at right now? Well, I think all the candidates, to be fair, uh, realize that the race they're in at the moment isn't the race for prime minister. It's the race to lead the Conservative Party. And so uh, one would expect them to uh, hew more to the right or to hew more to what they think the base of that party is uh, to try and uh, win this race. Uh, and then I suspect we'll hear uh, you know, a, a less aggressive form of what they're proposing when they go before the Canadian electorate. So, I mean, I guess the question is, what's the Conservative Party going to run it in the next uh, election? If you know, it was the leadership of someone like Kelly Leach, uh, it would probably be to emphasize uh, questions around immigration and push hard on those buttons. If it's someone like Maxime Bernier, I suspect we're going to see the Conservatives saying uh, Trudeau has bankrupted the country with these budget deficits and he's spending money left and right. What you really want is a tax cut, and we'll do that. And, and look at this, we'll also deregulate the telecommunications so you don't have to pay so much for your cell phone bill. Uh, and it'll be that sort of campaign, I suspect, we'd see out of someone like Maxime Bernier uh, someone like Andrew Scheer, I think we'd probably see somewhat similar themes than uh, Maxime Bernier, but maybe also trying to emphasize uh, a certain number of moral issues, uh, and you know, maybe kind of resistance to transgendered rights or something like that, to say we shouldn't upset the character of the way things are in the country. That's an interesting concept, because uh, that was the feeling I think a lot of people had back in 2006 when Stephen Harper was running for, for the top job. Uh, the, the concern was about that hidden agenda and, and a, a right-wing moral agenda uh, that he was going to try to introduce. It never happened, and, and notwithstanding whatever his personal beliefs might be in this, he, he seemed to come to the realization that you've got to move a little more to the middle, but I'm not sensing an awful lot of the conservative candidates in this race uh, edging toward the middle. They seem to be pretty much entrenched in, in some right-wing position, whether it's, as you say, moral or economic. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Uh, again, I suspect once the election came, some of the uh, sort of more radical uh, promises would be withdrawn because they may be successful in getting votes in certain regions of the country uh, in a race uh, such as this, but to the general electorate, they might be relatively toxic. So Maxime Bernier, for instance, saying that he wants to get rid of the equalization program in the country, uh, probably not that popular in uh, about seven provinces that receive equalization <laughs> in this country. And so that would come at a cost. Uh, I mean, similarly, you know, coming out uh, opposed to any kind of form of corporate welfare. I mean, again, publicly that's popular until the companies uh, that receive different kinds of tax credits, say, for running research and development programs, say, well, wait a second, we'll no longer be able to build this or that in our community without this kind of uh, fund, or we wouldn't be able to continue to be innovative technologically, and then people step back. So, I mean, I suspect we would see some watering down of the more extreme claims, but... uh, I think that's part of the, 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 it's a different election when you're trying to become the leader of a party and then when you're trying to run for election as a prime minister. I think we see a sort of similar thing in the NDP race where a lot of candidates will come out, say, against pipelines uh, in the context of a leadership race, feeling that that's maybe popular with their base, uh, might be less prone to want to do that in a general election when it would be costing them seats in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. 
that it's it's interesting to see how this rolls out. And and I your, your point's well taken. That, that right now they're just running for the leadership of their party, but in in the back of their mind they are looking down the road, obviously, to the next federal election. And I mean, if you take O'Leary at his word, for instance, Peter. Uh, he said the main reason he was dropping out was he couldn't deliver in the federal election. He, he almost took it as a, a fait accompli that, yeah, I'm going to win the leadership if I stay in this, but I don't know if I can I can get Quebec, I can deliver Quebec, and therefore couldn't probably develop a majority government for the Conservative Party there. That was his rationale. You can take that at face value. So it's it's there, I guess, uh, that they're looking this, and which raises the, the bigger question, I guess, with the, the field that's left now after O'Leary's left. Uh, can Max Bernier deliver the rest of the country? Maybe he can. Do, he, maybe he can deliver Quebec. But what about the rest of the country? Well, and he may not even be able to deliver Quebec, as you know, some of his positions, for instance, around uh, supply management and agriculture, are not going to be popular in parts of, of the province. I mean, I think it, it, uh, part of the question would be: Are Canadians uh, that upset with the Liberal government currently? And to the extent that they are, is it around themes that they're being taxed too much? or that government spending is, you know, running away, or is it in fact the opposite, that they see a government that's unable to solve collective problems because it, it lacks the resources to do so in a, in, a, in a comprehensive manner? So, you know, in that kind of case, I'm not sure that the Conservatives are that well-placed in uh, 2017 in terms of where public opinion is. And obviously by the time we have our next election, things may have changed. Uh, but you know, it's not clear to me, and I mean, we've seen this provincially with the uh, difficulty that Tim Hudak uh, had as a provincial conservative leader that, you know, the answer of uh, less government and lower taxes uh, doesn't have the resonance it had in the 1990s. I mean, there's been significant tax cuts since then. Uh, the state hasn't really grown despite a growing economy. Uh, and so, you know, in fact, we've got a federal government which at level of spending is kind of where it was in the 1950s in terms of the share of the economy. Uh, you know, in those kinds of cases, it's not clear that that message is going to have a lot of resonance, you know, short of making a kind of deeper argument like, you know, this government's been around too long or they're getting too easy with public money and, you know, using a sort of throw the bums out thing as a, as a lead argument as opposed to the more ideological question about taxes. So I'm not sure that Bernier is necessarily uh, that well placed. I'm not sure if Canadians are really looking for a libertarian uh, savior at the moment. Although he might get some traction on more pocketbook questions like could we do things to lower people's cell phone fees by you know deregulating uh, the CRTC or getting the CRTC out of telecoms, you know, on questions like that he might get more traction. But again, is that the ballot question for Canadians? Uh, their cell phone bill, uh, he would have to work hard on that. Well, exactly, and and to your point about Quebec, I mean, you know, the Quebec dairy industry is not going to take kindly to eliminating supply management. I mean, they, 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 they like. They, 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 let's face it, the Quebecois, and I guess probably people in just about every province, Pete, they like federal money coming their way, and and for a, a guy to say, well, I'm going to watch, I'm going to cut all these programs out, uh, they've got to wonder about their long term benefit and, and the impact it's going to have on their industry. Uh, yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I would also say that if we look at sort of value surveys, uh, Quebecers tend to have a slightly more collectivist view. Uh, of, of uh, you know, uh, public policy issues in the sense of seeing that a collective answer through the state may be preferable to just letting people, you know, sort it out individually, which, again, is, you know, contrary to what uh, Maxime Bernier is putting forward. I mean, if we had a federal government, you know, like uh, where uh, you know, someone like Trudeau was very unpopular in Quebec, uh, then maybe Bernier would have a, a space to move in and say, well, I'll be the voice of Quebec uh, against the federal government. But Trudeau, in fact, is relatively popular at the current moment. Uh, so it's not clear that, again, there there would be 
the natural way that he'd be like the native son and you know then be able to take say two-thirds of the seats in Quebec I think he would still have a very tough road to hoe you know he might increase the number of seats the conservatives hold but uh, probably not that greatly the conservatives did quite well in the last election in Quebec due to the the four-way votes vote splits uh, with the NDP and the Bloc and the Liberals all you know, vying for those seats, they were able to come up the middle in a number of, of seats. So it would be hard to see a, a great increase in the Conservative seat total based on, in fact, any of the programs being put forward uh, uh, by the candidates. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It was quite a day in uh, the Commons yesterday during question period as uh, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan was the target, obviously, of the opposition parties. Uh, for his claim to being the architect of Operation Medusa. That was a Canadian operation in the Afghanistan war some years ago. Uh, They were calling for his resignation, uh, questioning his military record. Uh, Some say that the opposition parties went a little bit too far. Uh, Others would suggest that uh, for those who have been watching the political process in Ottawa for some time, that uh, that's the way the game gets played in that political arena. If they smell blood, they go for it. Joining us to talk about this is David Aiken. David, of course, is the uh, chief political correspondent with Global News, and uh, he's going to be with us in a couple of seconds to give his read on what's been going on. It has become a controversy, uh, and, and I understand that sometimes controversies can be manufactured. Sometimes controversies can be blown up way out of proportion, and, and that's always the assertion. And I know from a political standpoint and a strategic standpoint oftentimes when these things start to happen to political parties, whoever is in power, there's always this hope, I guess, at some point that, well, this will blow over in a couple of days. Oh, this is just a tempest in a teapot. But there are some larger issues here that I think come into play. And uh, that's why we wanted to bring David in, and we will in just a couple of seconds, to see exactly what's happening uh, with uh, the situation in Ottawa and uh, the long-term effect this is going to have on the Trudeau government, and more importantly, I guess, on the defense minister. We got David now? Good. Okay. David, uh, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. David, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, no problem, Bill. It is going to be a bit of a busy day today on the Hill, just like it was yesterday, and Harjit Sajjan is going to be the star attraction, uh, unfortunately for him. When they went at him yesterday, uh, first of all, I I hate to do this almost as if we're we're talking about a boxing match here, but obviously he was playing defense, and excuse the bad pun Mm -hmm. there, David. Uh, How did he do? As I watched it, my perception is that uh, they, they stung him pretty badly. I think that's pretty fair to say. So the, here's how the day unfolded for Sajid and the rest of us. And we know this this is a day unfolding after a, essentially four days in which Sajid has come under increasing pressure to apologize, resign, depending on who you're talking to. So House of Commons question period is at 2.15. He comes into the House of Commons lobby at 2 o'clock to speak to us, to reporters, to apologize. We have lots of questions, notably... Here's a guy with a resume that is shining uh, it's shining on its own merits. He served three tours in Afghanistan. He was decorated by the Canadians, decorated by the Americans. Um, he then went from there to a role in the Vancouver Police Department where he chased down Asian triad gangs and did all of this uh, with commendations from all his superiors. So the question that we put to him was, why? What what the heck? Why did you need to embellish your resume? Not just once. Remember, it's not just once. Mm -hmm. He did it in a speech in India, but he also did it in 2015 when he was running for office. He said he was the architect of this major military operation. So why? He had no answer for us. So he gets into the House of Commons and the opposition, both New Democrats and Conservatives, same thing. Why? And then, is this the first time you have embellished 
any facts. And all he would say, and he was up on his feet 11 times yesterday, uh, uh, Bill, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's the clip you saw. Yeah. And until I think there's some, clo- I don't want to use the word closure, but to those who were Harge fans, and that's that was his name in the, in the military, Harge Sajjan, uh, Major Harge, uh, the, he has a lot of friends who, who are disappointed and dismayed that he went, to, went and did this, and they want to know why. And I think that is likely the next step before it goes away, but it is not going away until there's something along those lines. And certainly the, op- the opposition, sorry, is not good enough. It's good enough for the prime minister. He's, he thinks we should all forgive and forget, but it's not good enough for the opposition. And that's the, the the most puzzling aspect of this. And I, I don't know if we're ever going to get inside his head, David, about exactly you know, the rationale that was going on when he did this. But as you mentioned, with his, his stellar military record and, and, of course, law enforcement record as well, but he also knows chain of command. And he knows, first of all, mm-hmm. that if he's going to do this sort of thing, he is going to get called out on it eventually. I mean, that's the, that's part of the military code, let alone the political code. Well, this story was the, that, that he fudged these uh, claims was first reported by my friend Matthew Fisher at the National Post. Yeah. Matthew's overseas, and Matthew spent a long time uh, writing about Afghanistan, and he was in theater. So I'm certain that it was some military officers or former military officers who saw this speech in India and, and twigged Matthew. And then we dug up this second tape from July 2015. Um, in any event, chain of command, you're right, very important. And let's put this in some bigger context and why this is a problem. Right now, you've got the civilian, essentially, head of the CF, and that's the minister, fighting a credibility battle. But you move two rungs down in that chain of command to the number two uniformed member of our services. That's Vice Admiral Mark Norman. He's the vice chief of defense staff, and he's under suspension right now. He is accused of leaking cabinet secrets. And so if you are a sergeant or somebody on the ground looking up, or you're our allies, perhaps even worse, the U.S. generals that are right now, you know, in the Trump administration, the, our British friends, our French friends, and you're looking at the Canadian Forces HQ, the ministers fighting this credibility problem, the number two is under suspension for leaking secrets. What the heck is going on? And that, I think, is probably the bigger picture that, uh, as I say, our allies and our serving men and women are probably focused on right now. Well, and it all comes down, as, uh, as you mentioned in, in your discussion with Donna Friesen last night on Global National, David, this is, there's a credibility issue here. I mean, whatever mm-hmm. your political stripe, when the, the head of, of this particular portfolio is, is basically having his credibility and authenticity question like this, uh, it's not just happening on, in Parliament Hill. It's happening at the Pentagon. It's happening at NATO headquarters. A lot of people are saying, hey, you know, we thought this guy was pretty good stuff. What's going on here? Exactly. Those questions are going to be asked. And let's remind folks what is on the government's plate right now and the defense minister's plate. Some pretty serious stuff. First of all, we have committed to the United Nations to send our troops into harm's way in Africa, somewhere. We don't know where. We've been waiting for the minister to make a decision where we're going to go. Uh, And as I say, it's a dangerous spot right now. But that's on the table. We have a multi-billion dollar naval procurement program underway right now. We, you know, we don't really have much of a Navy, and that's for two decades of darkness so far as the, the Navy is concerned. But we've committed to building ships. But that procurement process is in the process of, of slightly going offside, partly to do with Vice Admiral Mark Norman and that whole thing that I mentioned. And then we have a defense policy review. The liberals are going to rewrite and update uh, the defense policy. It's the blueprint for our entire Canadian forces. It was last done early on during the Harper years in 2006, 2007. Hasn't been done since. Those are just three big, big tasks that a defense minister has to deal with. 
And it makes it very difficult when the defense minister is dealing with a credibility problem. He's sitting down talking to his generals at National Forces HQ, National uh, Defense Headquarters HQ, or he's talking to our allies, be it at the United Nations, uh, in the French military, wherever it is. It does make life a bit difficult for him. But what about the political end of this thing? And, and, and I think that's the one that's really got a lot of folks scratching their heads at this stage. And, and you mentioned the dynamic that occurred at, at Question mm-hmm. Period yesterday, David, uh, with uh, Sejan himself up a number of times answering questions from Mr. Mulcair and from Rona Ambrose and others uh, concerned about this. Uh, there have been occasions uh, where the prime minister, whether it's Trudeau or Stephen Harper or whatever, will come to a minister's defense and, and, and stand up and, and take you know, a shot on his behalf. That didn't happen yesterday. What's that tell you? I think the prime minister is going to give him the the limited cover he, the prime minister believes he deserves, which is you know, not insignificant. He says he's, he's, he's owned up to it. He's, uh, he's um, apologized, and that is good enough for me and should be good enough for all Canadians. That is the line from uh, Trudeau. But uh, he was invited to do so a second time by the NDP leader, Thomas Mulcair, and he decided not to and let Sajjan make, I think at that point, was his fourth or fifth apology of the uh, the hour in the House. The politics of it, and I was in the House yesterday watching this, and you can only see on TV the rules for TV in the House of Commons. You mm-hmm. can only see the person speaking yeah. and uh, the speaker. But in there, the, the Conservatives were merciless in their heckling, calling him a bald-faced liar, saying you are not fit to be a leader. And watching on the liberal side, he's Sajjan is popular in his caucus, and they can't be too thrilled. The liberals can't be too thrilled that he's having to make these apologies. I mean, it, it was humiliating at, at some point. Very glum faces on the liberal side. And so to the extent that this is now affecting the business of the government, that, that people on the opposition side are fired up, they, they smell blood in the water, the proverbial blood in the water, and on the liberal side, they're hunkering down. They know they're going to be in for it again today, likely tomorrow. And I'm not sure that there's and certainly the, the government, the prime minister, given his attitude yesterday, he's not going to fire him. Maybe a shuffle somewhere months down the road, but he is not going to succumb to opposition pressure uh, right now. Again, because he feels that the issue is done with. Body language speaks volumes, though, doesn't it, David? Uh, because, you know, oh, yeah. we've all seen the cat calling that goes back and forth uh, during some of these heated discussion periods during question period, uh, and, and the accusations that, hey, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. I'm not hearing anybody on the government side saying that now. They, they, uh, they, they can say at the beginning of our conversation, they're playing defense at this stage. They are, and if they're, they're, they're not saying it in the House of Commons, but liberals online and uh, in the political world of the Ottawa bubble here, everybody lives around Twitter, and you often see you know, journalists and politicians back and forth on Twitter. And so to that extent, there, I have seen a lot of liberal MPs supporting Sajjan in the sense that look at this guy's record. They've been circulating, for example, a glowing letter of commendation that Sajjan got from Brigadier General Fraser, who was in charge of Operation Medusa. And this letter says, wow, this Sajjan guy was great. I want to have him on my hip all the time. He's fabulous. Now, this letter was written, again, 2006, 2007. It's not written in response to this latest thing. But nonetheless, you can see the liberal strategy here is reminding everybody, you know, he earned those medals that he wears on his on his chest. He, he has a right to wear those medals mm-hmm. uh, for bravery. But now... It's a, he's a politician. Remember, he was only elected for the first time in 2015, so he's still, in that sense, a rookie politician put into a very big and difficult job for even the most seasoned politicians. 
And uh, this can be sometimes what it's like in politics. Uh, it's going to come hot and heavy at you. But when uh, the minister that was in charge of democratic reform uh, stumbled, and, and I'm trying to be nice in my, my description of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, About her place of birth and all that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and that didn't go away. And I don't think that was nearly as, as, as dramatic as what the, the, has happened here. Uh, she was basically lost her job as a result of this. Uh, how much faith does the prime minister have in his minister at this stage, and uh, and and how much? Uh, how I guess you know how how is he going to defend this? Is 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 it the old idea that well, news cycles are forty eight hours and this is going to go away? Because I don't get the sense it is going to go away, David. No, and of course, news cycles. I mentioned Twitter, but news cycles are like constant, twenty four seven nowadays. It, it it won't stop. Right now, this morning, as we're chatting, Bill, the cabinet is meeting. It's the regular weekly Tuesday cabinet meeting. They started at nine thirty. They'll finish it around noon. Uh, the prime minister will not is not scheduled to speak to us. Not scheduled to answer reporters' questions. But as is the liberal way, we're going to be hanging right outside the cabinet room, at where we expect we'll see the defense minister. They haven't seen uh, any news that he's not going to be at the cabinet meeting we'll see the other cabinet members and i'm sure they're all going to get asked what about this is it all said and done how do you feel what's the mood uh and then we'll get into question period at two o'clock today and and so that very much an open question is what will the response be will there be any further response from the liberals i suspect there may be some discussion of that as they meet in cabinet even just something from if if the prime minister is really sort of true to his word yesterday in the House of Commons, it may be as simple as opening the meeting up by saying, listen, we're standing with uh, Minister Sajjan here. He's going through some tough time. We appreciate his apology. That seems to me to be probably the way the liberals are going to play this. As I say, the opposition, uh, at the very least, wants some questions answered. And, um, you know, at the worst, one is resignation. One of the oldest political tricks, and you've been watching Parliament Hill for a long time, David, is is change the channel. Uh, try to get the, yep. the country, trying to get the, the parliament to talk about something else other than this. Do they have anything in their back pocket that they can lay out here to try to attempt mm. to do that? Well, we got a new census release tomorrow. Bill. I don't know what that's going to crack. Oh, you guys will be all of... over that. <laughs> but, honest to God, that is an important release. Well, it is. We yeah. will be on it. But, yeah. but uh, I mean, I'm looking at the calendar ahead. We've got the census. Uh, okay. Uh, later this afternoon, we're going to see Christian Freeland, our foreign affairs minister. She's going to be speaking to parliamentarians about our U.S.-Canada trade relationship. And that, too, is vitally important, certainly for folks in the Golden Horseshoe. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've got to have that border working. Uh, it's, but I don't know that there will be any news other than her updating that we're still talking to the Americans and we're trying to walk Donald Trump off the ledge, if you will, from uh, the NAFTA ledge. But really, that's I mean, those are the big issues for the government right now. The substantive issues is our Canada-U.S. trade relationship and how that's going. But that also works us back to this issue with, with Sajjan. because. Yeah. The Canada-U.S. relationship on trade is sort of intertwined with border security, our military cooperation, and Sajjan is a he's a key member of the cabinet and a key part of uh, the group that we're using, that the Trudeau government is using, to talk to the Americans. That group includes the seasoned old pro, Ralph Goodale, the public safety minister. It includes Freeland. It includes our new trade minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, and it includes this guy, of, you know, a colonel in the reserves, a decorated colonel with uh, wartime experience, Harjit Sajjan. And I have heard from folks in the American military community, and they are going, how does that guy still have his job? You know, that's, that's some of the buzz that's going around uh, places in D.C. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow at Hamilton City Council and the General Issues Committee, 
Uh, they're going to put forward a, a recommendation uh, that, uh, well, caught my eye. It's amazing what you can find out when you read some of the agendas for uh, some of the council meetings. Uh, and this has to do with the ward boundary issue, and more specifically about the consultants who were hired by the city to do the basic interviews, the uh, the public meeting sessions, and prepare a report on recommendations on what to do with Hamilton's ward boundaries. And as we've told you in the past, it's already cost a considerable amount of money. Uh, tomorrow they will uh, be dealing with a motion that says that you have to actually dip into their reserves now for even more money for a report that city councillors don't even want to acknowledge. They, they don't want to do anything about. Joining us to talk about this uh, rather bizarre incident is Matt Jelly, who, of course, is a concerned citizen who uh, raised the flag on this issue a number of times during the debate. Matt, you thank first of all for the time. It's great to have you with us on the show again today. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. Did you? If, I showed you. The, uh, this thing is just bizarre. When I saw this this morning, I had to read it twice. I said, are you kidding me? They're going to pay two. They have already paid two hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and now they want an extra four thousand some odd dollars uh, because they asked for another report, which they ignored again. Yeah, right. Well, they they ended up voting for their their own recommendation. Yeah. That was uh, so. Yeah, they they received a report uh, originally in the fall of last year. Uh, and that report uh, was uh, 270,000, and that was actually a number that uh, council had capped as the uh, as the expense that they were willing to uh, make on a report in the first place. Um, so, in in that context, 4,000 is not a lot compared to the the original 20 270,000 they've already paid. Um, but every every dollar counts, as as some of the councillors themselves remind us at budget time. Um, and uh you know like you said it's it's sort of i don't think we needed consultants to get us to the conclusion that council favored in the end which was essentially the status quo and even even worse than the status quo if you look at it a certain way so uh yeah i mean it's it's uh it's no surprise i knew there were going to be additional costs uh, to the report as soon as they sort of uh, delayed the process uh, for their own uh for councilors own suggestions to make it into the report so um you know, I think more concerning is actually that they're they're taking this to the Ontario Municipal Board. There's a couple of appellants, and the city's going to hire an outside uh, uh, lawyer to fight that case, which some of the councillors themselves acknowledged would be a, a losing case at the OMB. Uh, so it's uh, they know that's a waste of money, but they're going to go ahead with it anyway. And they had they had alternatives uh, available to them. So, well, this is the you're right in the, in the grand scheme of things, four thousand two hundred and seventy dollars is not a whole lot of money in in the city's budget. We get that, yep. but I look at it this way, Matt. It's rubbing salt in the wounds of the taxpayers that wanted to see something happen here. Uh, and and then, let's face it, if you want to backtrack a little bit further, uh, the report that you alluded to and the consultants uh, that, that did this report. The only reason they got hired in the first place is because of public pressure from the citizenry. I mean, this this we is something that we have dragged city council kicking and screaming into this process, and and they've shoved it back every chance they get, and now it's going to cost even more money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if if you were to tell anyone at the time of their original vote to commission this report, um, if they could, if you could see into the future what the result would be, I think most people would be furious. Uh, but it's gonna it's it's been such a a long process kind of thing that it's, uh, um, you know, time has made it less of a scandal somehow. But uh, absolutely, every, every little bit counts. Like I said, um, I've, I've seen, you know, councillors waste uh, four grand in a day before having a, you know, they, they brought in the, uh, the integrity commissioner to give a legal opinion a few months ago on LRT. And he sat there the entire day. They could have received that opinion at any point during the meeting. And 
he uh, he gets quite an hourly rate. Um, and so, I mean, it's not it's not just that four grand, but I think all uh, th- those kind of things add up on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, that you know, how can we scratch our heads when at the end of the day when we're we're out of money for certain things and we're we're not investing in uh, in transit this year as we should be um, you know and and uh, that's where the money ends up i mean we we do have some big ticket items that we can we can obviously point to that are big expenses but uh, it it's a lot of this as well and uh, it it sort of feeds into that story about the the city you know hiring uh, lots of consultants and and spending a lot of money on consultants and not knowing exactly why they did so well, I, I, I'd like to get into Well, maybe I don't want to get inside the heads of some of the councillors that decided to vote on this. Uh, it would be a very frustrating exercise, I think. But, you know, the argument always is, well, come on, you know, we, you know the staff are overworked, so we, sometimes we have to get consultants. And besides, these people are expert in this sort of thing. I get that. But if you're going to pay this kind of money, and now it's going to be, like we say, an additional $4,000 for this, for a report that you probably knew right in the, from the get-go that you were going to ignore anyway, uh, it, it really galls me as, as a citizen to see th- it's a misuse of funds, really, and it's really the same as the OMB hearing that you've just described, and not the first time they've done that, where they go through a very expensive process just to look as if they're trying to do something and address an issue, and in fact, they have no intention of doing it. Right, and, and um, I don't have a problem with experts being hired either. I, I, you know, I don't think anybody expects the entire city to be um, run by 16 people who have all the answers, or or even sometimes there are answers that are outside of the the abilities or uh, of you know senior staff or anyone that they they have on hand. So they do have to hire consultants, but and, and so by all means, but they they also need to to listen to those uh, those experts. So there's no point in hiring them in the first place. And um, this was a case. I mean. The consultants that did this report, they've, they've done uh, ward boundary reports for other municipalities uh, as well. So they're, and I'm actually very happy with the work that they, uh, they produced. Um, uh, council, I, I, and I think actually if council were being objective about this, they might have been too, but they, there were all sorts of other concerns that entered the picture. And still to this day, read you know comments from, from uh, some of those councillors who voted in favour of their, their gerrymandered option saying, well, we know our areas, and we know, you know, we know our way around. As if, as if the suggestion was to buy them new GPS units. It's not about that. It's about, you know, it's about uh, fundamental democracy in Hamilton. And um, so, I mean, they've they've sort of they've essentially uh, forfeited their ability to really uh, influence this decision much. Uh, like I said, they had multiple avenues that they could have explored the consultants gave them lots of options and they um, they developed their own option that doesn't even satisfy their own reasons for hiring the consultant in the first place so absolutely uh, from start to finish it's been uh, it's been infuriating that way it's one of these things where if you want to look down the road a little bit you're going to ask yourself at some point in the future say how much is this whole thing going to cost us uh, from the time that they hired the consultants and obviously the reports and now this uh, add-on to the extra four thousand dollars and then, of course, there's going to be the OMB hearing, uh, which is going to cost because, like you say, they're going to have to hire an outside lawyer to do that. That's not going to be cheap. Uh, so for this whole process to be done, which could have been and should have been done in such an efficient way, like many other municipalities have done, I, I can't even fathom a guess as to just how many hundreds of thousands of dollars this thing is going to cost us to get us to where we should have been probably two years ago. No, I, I, um, I'm not sure exactly what the, their, their costs will be for the OMB appeal. They did have an in-camera meeting uh, last Wednesday, 
um, to discuss how much they are willing to spend. To my knowledge, they haven't uh, they haven't capped an amount, but they've they've agreed to hire an outside lawyer. So there was there was some question about that, whether they hire an in-house lawyer or they go outside of City Hall. So um, that's usually more expensive if they're going outside. So that's what they've decided to do at this point. And they're, they're handing that lawyer a really tough case to to fight. Um, uh, especially, it, it's not just that you know the city has a position, and there's a few people that disagree with them. Uh, there's good Ontario Municipal Board precedents. There's uh, the report that council that council did uh, uh, pay pay that money to uh, develop is a great resource uh, because it does it does give well researched options for how a ward boundary uh, realignment could happen. Um, and then some of the, the some of the statements that councillors made while passing this. Um, so whoever is is taking on this case as a lawyer, um, they have their work cut out for them because um, they've they've shown bad faith throughout this. And um, you know the rules on ward boundary uh, reviews aren't uh, they're they're not ambiguous. It's uh, pretty straightforward. And uh, we have a glaring problem in Hamilton that uh, council did everything to sort of squeeze out of out of dealing with this term or for the last three or four terms. Right. So, um, yeah, and I think uh, I think the costs will add up, but I don't I don't suspect we're going to really know uh, the full picture until this is this is all wrapped up later this year. Uh, after the OMB will eventually make a ruling, or it's possible too that the OMB does um, guide a process where they they talk to the city about revisiting their decision, um, and then it becomes their own choice again. But uh, uh, yeah, the costs continue to mount up, and and uh, needlessly so. I, I don't know if you're a fan, but I'm a huge fan of the Netflix series House of Cards, and I just saw the uh, the online promo. The uh, the new series starts uh, in just a few weeks here. On Netflix. Anyway, there's a section in there where President Underwood, uh, yeah. Kevin Spacey's character, says the voters don't know what they want. I know what they need. I'll tell them what they need. And we're watching this and thinking, how diabolical. And I said, that's exactly what city council said about this. <laughs> Not many is, is so much in as many words, or maybe some of them did, but it's the yeah. same attitude. I, I feel sorry for the writers in that show when real life politics <laughs> <laughs> become uh, more, you know, more diabolical than uh, than fiction. But, um, but yeah, and I, I've heard some of the statements too on this too um, about the, you know, the number of people that participated in the process at consultations or the number of people that showed up at uh, the meetings that were uh, that were held at city city hall on this issue. Just that. There wasn't a huge turnout, that kind of thing, and and uh, absolutely there wasn't a big turnout for uh, you know sort of an obscure governance issue compared to the kind of the, the kind of meetings that we have about LRT. Um, but it, it is funny. I've seen council. I've seen people pack the chambers at city council chambers, and councils had no problem disagreeing with the uh, those people, right? So it's. I don't think uh, I don't think the level of engagement is always uh, going to have a direct correlation to how council council votes necessarily. Sometimes it does, and and I think that happened with LRT. But um, there are lots of lots of issues that council deals with that uh, the, the public isn't engaged or aware of. Um, but yeah, but that doesn't mean that's not something they should be doing anyway. No, and I, yeah, I don't think people are engaged on you know 100 percent of all issues all the time, and. Um, you know, this is one that's uh, it, it's definitely not as uh, direct or tangible as as stadiums or or trains or highways kind of thing. But it is an important it's an important governance issue that uh, is pretty fundamental and affects all other issues. So, I, I mean, I don't blame the public for uh, not having an interest or not uh, necessarily understanding the issue. Um, 
it's it's a matter of what we prioritize in terms of you know uh, of municipal coverage of, of issues and some things take the spotlight absolutely so um, but just uh, just for some councillors to say that it wasn't worth dealing with because they didn't see enough people in the in the council chambers in the middle of a business day they didn't see the the, the meeting packed I don't think that's a reflection on whether it's a, it's a worthy issue to deal with no but what they've done there of course is sidestep the issue which is basically this is their duty as elected officials as you and I talked about some months ago Matt when when this came to a head and it looked pretty much what council was going to do was turn their back on the report. Uh, this is this is the responsibility of all levels of government. The federal government's already done it. Uh, the provincial government usually just follows along with the federal guidelines, the new ward bound, or riding boundaries in that case, and that will come into play next year when we have our provincial election. Those new boundaries will be in place. And yeah, there is going to be another another provincial riding here created, just as there was a federal one. City councilors are supposed to do this too. And when the city of Hamilton was incorporated in two thousand, the new city of Hamilton. They were told that within the next couple of years, you need to do this. Yep. 17 years later, and these guys are still kicking it down the road. Yeah, it was the transition board yeah. amalgamation that, that made that suggestion in the first place. Um, uh, and I mean, it's, I think it is fair to say that this is a decision that shouldn't be in the hands of councillors. Absolutely not. So You're right. They've dealt with it poorly. But I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see um, a number of things taken out of uh, the hands of municipal councils, specifically these issues where... You know there is a there is a legitimate conflict of interest in councillors drawing their own boundaries, just as there is in councillors voting on um, you know ranked balloting that kind of thing. Um, these issues that it's it's not the councillors don't just approach it with is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? It's what's good for me is is entered into that that conversation, right? And um, I mean, in one way, I just I think we shouldn't. It's it's sort of unfair to put those issues in the hands of councillors because you know they're they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. But uh, I, I'd love to see the province take more um, more of a leadership role in terms of those issues that affect municipalities. Um, and there's been a number of things that I think good good moves that the provincial government has made, but they've uh, they've handed them down to municipalities to decide rather than saying this is a province-wide change that we're going to make for all municipalities. I'd like to see that. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. If there's you know yeah. some arm's-length body that basically says, yeah, okay, we're doing Hamilton's restructuring. Uh, next week we're doing Sault Ste. Marie's, whatever the case might be, because uh, there's more than enough work for them as a result. So I, I, that, that would be fine. But having said that, the city council, in this particular case in Hamilton, uh, has to realize, first of all, that body doesn't exist, and B, right. they still have a responsibility to do something about this. And they did get an independent opinion on this from these consultants, which I think a lot of people in this city thought was a pretty fair and reasonable exercise to do. And for these guys to simply turn their back on it and then pretend that, no, we're not gerrymandering, no, we're not concerned and overwhelmed with our own self-interest, it's blatant that they are. And um, they sort of made the decision, it, it seemed like they were pretending the Ontario Municipal Board doesn't exist um, because they... They went for their own most most favorable option without you know with, without much worry. It seemed that it was going to be appealed, but um, you know really for the appellants, I'm not one of the appellants, but um, they you know would have a harder time I think appealing if council had decided to go for a middle of the road option that um, that likely would have satisfied nobody, but at the at the end of the day it wouldn't have uh, been seen as um, nefarious on their part, or it wouldn't have been seen as as sort of conflicted. Uh, if they'd just gone middle of the road, there wouldn't be nearly as much of a, a controversy about it. Um, I, why they didn't take that option strategically on their part, I don't know. Um, 
but uh, but th- this process will always end up uh, uh, back at the Ontario Municipal Board. It's really who has the the final say. So. Um, uh, personally, I, as someone who wants to see that happen, for it to go to the OMB and, and for a third party to look at it, uh, they've they council really did everything that I wanted them to do, short of short of picking my favorite option and just say, saving time. But like and uh, money, yeah, saving a lot of money and time. Uh, they could have gone for for one of the options presented, but. Um, as far as seeing the right thing happen, uh, they've they've moved this exactly in the right direction, I think, because um, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, OMB case, and I think the city's really going to have their back up against the wall to to try and come up with a uh, a reason why we should uh, ignore uh, essentially the, the the Charter of Rights and free, Freedoms in terms of how people ought to be represented. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.